Hi, everyone, and welcome to Dead to Rights, the podcast, Season 1, Episode 49. I'm your host, Donna Carrick. We have a fantastic end-of-year lineup scheduled for December. On December 16th, I'm going to bring you an interview with E.C. Frey, author of Entangled Moon, and also I'll have a reading of a fun short story titled Kitty Claws to the Rescue by crime writer Rosemary Aubert. And that was featured in 13 Claws by the Maydams of Mayhem, Carrick Publishing 2017. On December 23rd, I'm going to introduce you to Marilyn Kay, the author of That Damn Cat, A Journey into the Dark, and a reading by, of That Damn Cat by myself, and that was from 13 Claws as well. On December 30th, I'll be bringing back author Joan O'Callaghan, a dear friend of mine, just to close up the year. She started the year, and so we're going to have her to close it. And that'll be for our 52nd episode of 2018 and our final episode of 2018. And Joan is the author of Colors of Canada and Amazing Days. I'll also be doing a reading of her short story titled Thrice the Brinded Cat, and that was from 13 o'clock by the Maydams of Mayhem, Carrick Publishing 2015. As for today, I'll be bringing onto the pod Marta Moran Bishop, and she is the author of Emotions and Dinky the Nurse Mare's Foal, also The Void. I'll also be reading a short story titled Belief by Jane Peterson Burfield, and that one was featured in World Enough and Crime, Carrick Publishing, 2014. Before we get into today's interview, I want to talk to our listeners who are working to break into the writing industry. One of the things that I've learned is that there is no single right way to approach your art. People who claim to have the magic bean are either misleading you or they are misleading themselves. Having said that, there are a few key elements that are shared by successful writers, and one of these elements is a strong grasp of the poetic, a feel for the words, and an ear for lyricism. If you're writing stories and have never dipped your toes into the warm, fluid colors of poetry, then chances are that you really do not have a mastery of cadence in your stories. I suggest you break out your trunks and take the plunge. Study the great poets. And when you feel ready, dust off your favorite notebook, ink up the old quill, and try your hand at poetry. You're not obligated to become a master poet. You are not obligated to share this work with anyone, although once you feel confident in your poetry, you may choose to. However you approach this homework, you are sure to find that the connection you establish with poetry and the bards is going to enhance your current work in progress. It can't help but do so. Today, I'm performing a bit of an archaeological dig into my own pool of yesteryear and recovering a poem I wrote in the early 80s titled, Han. I won't analyze this poem for you. You're free to draw your own meaning from the words. Or, if you'd like an analysis, feel free to email me at carrickpublishing at rogers.com and simply ask for one. I'll be happy to oblige. But for purposes of this presentation, I want you to just hear the words orally, the way they are meant to be heard. And I want you to think about what you, as an author, might have meant if you'd written these words. What situation might you try be trying to describe, and what pain might you be struggling with if you had written these words? And that is the beauty of poetry, that every listener will take his or her own meaning. And now I'll read to you from my poem, titled Hung. Feeling so hung, to find my soul stretched out to sunbake, brittle, cracked, and sore. So one would come across me in a meadow, unforgiving afternoon, and there anoint my head with oil, too parched to cry aloud for rain, and leave me there, alone to perish, slow and languishing in pain. Shall I await the moment when the shadows stretch from tree to tree across the meadow? Will they come and bring relief to one so hung? So real it was, that moment, 
that was stolen from a dream. I could have tasted it forever, moist and brazen like a lover. The dream cries out, unhand my child. I must return that moment to the other sphere. I cannot keep it with me here. So hung am I to steal another instant in the shadows as they stretch across the meadow, reaching out to shield my dying and deserving soul. The sun is not amused. And that has been my poem, Hung, written in the early 1980s. And uh, your homework for this week is to try to do an analysis of that poem and maybe send it to me at Carrick Publishing at rogers.com. I'll be very interested to see what you think the words mean. And it's all about feeling those words when it comes to poetry. Now, I'm thrilled to bring you an interview with a fine lady, an animal advocate, a poet, and an author in her own right, Marta Moran Bishop. Many of you will know Marta through her book, Dinky, the Nurse Mare's Fool. Marta is the product of three generations of women writers. Their legacy to her was an inquisitive mind and a joy of writing and reading. She reads to children and adults alike, taking her books from children's classes to senior centers. Her first book, We Three, A Mother's Love in Verse, a children's poetry book illustrated by Hazel Mitchell, was a collaborative effort and a labor of love. She took the short, sweet verses her grandmother wrote in the 1930s for her children and expanded those and added additional verses of her own. Miss Bishop is a prolific and versatile writer. She currently has two children's poetry books, Dinky, the Nurse Mare's Foal, which is based on the true story of her rescue foal and written from his point of view and is enjoyed by both children and adults alike. Her novel, The Between Times, tells the story of a bleak world where society consists of the poor and the rich and the poor live in squalor, with only a prophecy for hope of a better future. It has a touch of paranormal in its pages. She has written three adult poetry books and a variety of fantasy and paranormal stories. A few of them are stories that her mother wrote over 40 years ago, and she finished while others are new and vibrant stories. She currently lives on a small farm in Massachusetts with her husband, three horses, cats, and a conure parrot named Bo. They help her remember to view the world through a child's innocence, and they keep her young and imaginative. And now, let's give a huge Dead to Rights welcome to Marta Moran Bishop. Hello? Hello, is this Marta Moran Bishop? It is. Good Please morning, Marta. Marta. Is this Donna it definitely is, and welcome to Dead to Rights. How are you this morning? Oh, I am good. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Good to hear. Good to hear your voice at last. Oh, it's a, it's wonderful to hear yours, and it's so and it's so nice of you to have me on. Oh, I'm glad to do it, Marta. I've known you, uh, for for our listeners' benefit, I've known Marta for years on Facebook and uh, social media in general, but we've never spoken before this moment, so this is a first for us. That it is, that it is. Mm -hmm. I wanted to have you... excited. Yeah. I wanted to have you on today because uh, from what I've seen online, I'm very intrigued by your poetry and your love for animals and the way that that comes out in your your writing. Um, uh, but I wanted to start today by maybe just introducing your work to our listeners. Um, I understand that you've got some poetry for children and that um, maybe you could share a piece with us. Would that be all right? I would love to. All um, right. This one is actually was started um, in small verses by my grandmother in uh, around the 1930s. And I finished the poems and published it. And this one's called The Good Grown-Ups. When grown-up folks go down the street, they walk so proper on their feet. They never skip or hop or run or do the things we think are fun. And when they talk, it's always low. Why we must shout, they do not know. Or why we fidget in our chairs while they sit firmly down on their, in theirs. <laughs> 
We wish they'd somehow understand the world is wide and much too grand, with many places for us to go and much to do before we grow. That is lovely. Th thank you. And what is the title of that? P3. I'm sorry? What is the title of that piece? This one's called uh, The Good Grown-Ups, and it's from We Three, A Mother's Love and Verse. And I saw that book actually, online. And that's available at yeah. Amazon, isn't it? Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, and a lot of other on online stores, I as well as my publisher's website. And who is your publisher, Marta? Crow, C-R-O-W-E Press. Okay, okay. And that's a, actually a perfectly fitting piece for you to have chosen because it kind of invokes the the sense of life and light that I, I see in a lot of your work and in your online presence. Um, so I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. Uh, when did you first start writing poetry? I've always written pieces, but the first time I really started publishing them was in 2009. Um, I started working on it when my mother passed away in 2005, and we found this book of her poet, of my grandmother's poetry, and my original thought was just to publish it as it was, but I realized some of the poems weren't finished, they weren't enough, so I got into her mind and finished her poems. There's a few in there that are just hers, there are a few in there that are just mine, but the majority of them are a combination of her and me. That is... And I try to be in her moment, in her place. That is lovely, how a thought can come down through the generations um, and, and be continuous within us, because I've always kind of believed that there is a continuity in humankind, and uh, that's a lovely expression of that continuity. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. Now, a great deal of your poetry and books, uh, they delve into your love of animals. Can you tell me a little bit about that, how that started to be your muse? Well, animals in general, I've watched. I've had them all my life. And um, my first, well, my first animal book was, <laughs> it's called Keeping the Upper Paw, The Cat's Guide to Training Your Human. And my mother started it. And she was, she had MS and she was disabled and she lived with me for 20 years. And she dragged me kicking and screaming to do chapters. And each of the cats in the book we actually had in the household. Mm -hmm. And so you'd have to get into the, the character of the cat and do that. But um, after that, um, it wasn't until after she passed away that I started We Three, and then I started, we adopted a nurse mare foal, and a nurse mare foal is bred to be thrown away. It's considered junk. Its only purpose in being bred is to give milk to the mother so that the mother can nurse a high-dollar mare's foal so she can go to show or be bred quicker. Oh, and we adopted this four-month-old frightened foal who was very malnutrition, um, was very, very skinny, was sickly, smart. And we were told he wasn't even going to ever grow big enough to, to ride, but he's now, his back comes up to my head. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny what a little love will do, isn't it? But watching him, watching him as he struggled through trying to be a horse, tried to struggle through trusting. Um, and I don't know, I just kind of saw, knowing some of his backstory, but just kind of saw him was able to get into his mind, and writing first-person horse is really, really hard to begin with. But you you have to let your own ego go. Mm -hmm. And the horses in general, and he in particular, taught me so much between him and the cats and our bird about 
that animals actually have their own language. They have their own ways of interacting with each other. And you have to meld your way with their way so that you both understand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, you've taken personification to a whole new level. I I can remember back in grade (laughs) school, and this is... um, I, you know, this is a long time ago because it's been a long time since I was in grade school. But I can remember the teachers talking about personification and how in literary terms, sometimes human emotion is just too great. And we can't really tap into it because if we do, it becomes a flood and no one can relate to it. It, it becomes overwhelming. So what a lot of writers will do is they'll tap into that emotion through our furry friends and our, our uh, animal friends. And you've taken that to a whole new level. I mean, you can actually write as if you are that animal. I mean, it, it's a wonderful thing to have that type of empathy, isn't it? Yeah, yes and no. Um, It is because you experience it yourself. I've written, I've watched trees and felt what the tree feels Mm -hmm. and written poems about the tree. Mm -hmm. Um, There was on the piece of property we owned, it had started off over 100 years earlier as two little saplings that grew together and intertwined. And so I wrote a poem about the two who were one and the love they had for each other. Mm -hmm. And to put myself in the position of the tree, but you really have to let go of your ego, Mm -hmm. your self-ego. You can put a part of your own emotions in it, but you have to let go of the ego of who you are. Yeah. Yeah. And that is what a lot of the greatest poetry is, just being able to being able to step back and really see with your eyes and really hear with your ears and allow that to come into you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, I think so. As far as that goes, Alec and I own a tree farm and we've been asked countless times what we plan to do with that 63 acres. And uh, we just look at each other and shake our heads because. That really isn't the point, um, what we plan to do with it. I mean, we love those trees, and Alec loves to go up there and just hike around and just work at clearing the trails and just kind of feel one with the wild turkeys that are up there and the trees themselves, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, absolutely. I completely understand yeah, that. Nothing more is really needed. There isn't. Mm-hmm. And there's a sense of peace that comes into you and a connection with life. Yes, yes. And that again, that get otherwise. That makes up some of the, the greatest and finest poetry that's ever been written. It's just that oneness with our surroundings, with our environment, that more than acceptance, um, acceptance with a zeal, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So tell me about Dinky. Um, Dinky, he's a character. Uh, in his book, there was everything in his book actually, other than the very beginning, which I only um, I took from what I heard mm-hmm. and what I knew of Nurse Mare Foles, mm-hmm. but and what I saw in his mind, which was is a really weird thing to say, but I did. Mm-hmm. But from the time we got him at four months old, everything that's in there is actually things that actually I witnessed or saw. Like there, we had wild turkeys, and one of them we called Keeping Tom because mm-hmm. he used to leave the other turkeys and go and look in all the windows. <laughs> and and what? Yeah. And one day, Keeping Tom was standing out by the corral, and Dinky was at the edge of the corral and you see this gobble gobble flapping the wings and all of this and and Dinky appearing to be talking back and that was a part of the story mm-hmm. um, and the conversation that you could see that they were having between them mm-hmm. um, <laughs> but Dinky is always trying to help he is the biggest helper you ever knew. 
He wants to learn how to push the wheelbarrow and drive the tractor and use the air hose, the air nailer, um, <laughs> clean out the water trough. It sounds like our border collie. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, and he's curious about everything. And, um, but yet at the same time, even though he's nine years old, there's a part of him that is still that frightened little foal. Mm-hmm. And at night, or sometimes even in the daytime, he will get in Chrome, the oldest horses, his best friend, stall with him and stay there for the night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's a 10 by 12 stall, stall mm-hmm. and you have two 1,100-pound horses in there, mm-hmm. which is... But they are, he's bound and determined he, he's not going to be alone. Mm-hmm. He's going to be sharing for that comfort level. Um, but uh, he had a very, very hard beginning. And um, then Chrome and Canella, he had a real quick wake-up call when we moved him in with Chrome and Canella because he had, he had to learn how to be a horse. Mm-hmm. And they gave him, they gave him timeouts. Mm-hmm. Did they send <laughs> him to Coventry? To you today. Did they send I'm him sorry? to Coventry? Yes, they sent him to Coventry. Have you read the book? Uh, no, no, I haven't, but I definitely will. And and the name of the book, say it for our listeners. Is Dinky the Nurse Mare's Foal? Yes, yes, I've seen it. it. I've seen it on Amazon. It, I know it's available on Amazon, and I will definitely get a copy of it, and I encourage our listeners to as well. Um, it did win an award with the Equus Film Festival. Oh, I didn't realize that. That's wonderful. Congratulations. Well, thank you. Um, and I don't normally put out um, my books for awards, so it was uh, kind of a surprise to me when they messaged me on Facebook and said, hey, will you come to our show? Mm-hmm. Will you be a part of the literary? Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. I know you're very, you're very low-key as writers go. You're far more, I think, if I'm not being too presumptuous, you're far more a poet than an, than an author in your bearing and in the way that you present yourself because you're not out there pushing your books all the time but they look like great fun books with an awful lot of heart and uh, that's really why I wanted to get you on to talk about them what is uh, your latest book well I have two latest books I have a, an adult poetry which is called when I was not myself and then I um, have an expanded version of a a book one of the divide, which is called Darkness Descends, and book two has been out for uh, since 2012. And it's book one, Darkness Descends, is a very, very dark book. They're both dystopian novels, but they're both taken from with things that were happening around us in the political field for since 2011. Mm-hmm that I saw happening and I heard about and something in me one day sat down and wrote Mm -hmm. and it was like the characters named themselves. They, they knew things I didn't know that I researched. I wrote it and then I was, I wrote the first book in two days and then I went back and said, wait a minute, is, are there caverns under Chicago? (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so I did the research after the fact and found out indeed there were mm-hmm. and th- things were, things such as that because they told their own story they knew their own story it was like it had been filling me from the universe mm-hmm. the story these stories and so that I wrote them but I expanded Darkness Descends because I wanted to have a um, bridge between the main character in Between Times, who's the heroine, because mm-hmm. um, her mother had been put to death in the Darkness Descends, and we knew that. But I wanted a bridge between that happening and her being just a little three-year-old and her being 15. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so I expanded that. 
Yeah. But yeah. Um, I would... there is hope at the end of the second book. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> I I would venture a guess that the times we're living through will be um will be inspiring an awful lot of dystopian genre based novels in the coming years. Um so you're out ahead of the curve on that that and that's called Darkness Descends and is that uh, is that the same publisher um Crow Press the, They're all the, they're all under the same publisher now. I I um change publishers and everything's under Crow Press. Okay. Okay. And, good. Um but also the um box set for the first two books of the Divide Darkness Sense of the Between Times is up on Amazon and Kindle. Okay. Okay, good. Good. I'm a Kindle reader, but, so that's good to know. <laughs> yeah. Between um, Kindle and audiobooks, I mean, because I'm always on the run and I just can't cart around the books anymore. I can remember in the old days, I couldn't go anywhere without my stash of comfort books. And uh, my back just won't stand for that anymore. So now they're all on my Kindle, you know. <laughs> yeah, I understand that real well. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. So what are you working on right at the moment, Marta? I'm working on two books. I'm working on Dinky's Mother's Story, which mm-hmm. is called The Nurse Mare's Tale. And it tells of the trauma and trials of being nothing but a broodmare mm-hmm. and having your fold being ripped from you. But it does have a happy ending. Okay, okay. Now I gotta tell you, that's got shades. That's got shades of Margaret Atwood in it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm working, of course, on um, part uh, the book three of the Divide because I I really have to write us out of this mess. Okay, <laughs> you've got yourself written into a corner. Um, yeah, yeah, that sounds really intriguing. I have to tell you that uh, the dark stories, for some reason, always have a, a special appeal for me. I don't really know why or what that says about me, but they do. Um, I'm hoping that you can read from one of your adult poems, but before you do, can you tell me which book of poetry it comes from and um, and how it came to be? Um, I have a series called A Poet's Journey. Mm-hmm. And the first book is called Emotions, A Post Journey Emotions, and the second book is called Sunlight and Shadows. And both books are, um, they deal with different parts of, I mean, heavens, emotions involving what you feel. I have a one that's about a 49 Ford tractor that we bought that nobody wanted anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> from the tractor, you know, feeling the emotions of the tractor to trees, to love poems, to betrayal, abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, There's the, a strong feeling in what you're saying of uh, of healing. It's almost like it's almost like your reach is out there to heal, to heal the unwanted, whether it's a tractor or a um, a foal or you know, a, a, a stupid wild turkey that's jumping all around the place, you know, <laughs> that they're all deserving of love and that you've got that love for them. Sorry for interjecting there, but that's the feeling that I get from hearing you speak. Every single one of my poems or my books has a sense of trying to heal something okay. or somebody, like I have some stories and and a novella that are out that are um, almost in a young adult because it's growing up and not belonging Mm -hmm. and having to find your place. And sometimes your place is you're not really a person. You're a fairy and you didn't know it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. You know, you were misplanted in the wrong. You right. were accidentally in the wrong world. world right. You were you a cuckoo. Yeah. Home, but there's, it's mm-hmm. a healing. It's a finding you. It's a, a growth of you, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. of the tree, or of the horse, or 
Um, but there, there is that spirit of healing and emotions and growth and connection between everything that lives, mm-hmm. everything that is. Yeah. Yeah. In everything. Not to sound too druid-like, but Alec and I have a, we have sort of a, a bit of a belief that everything retains some spirit, everything, even inanimate objects, even a, a, a door that you love and that you touch frequently, um, a table that was well-made, um, you know, with love, uh, certainly animals, that goes without saying, and, and living organic things like trees and flowers, um, when they reach for the sun, they're certainly filled with spirit, you know, more than we can ever imagine. But we sort of believe, and, and we're very down-to-earth, practical business people, both Alec and I, but we really do believe that even the most simple things, that glass that you drink from every day that you love, that you reach for uh, ahead of the other glasses, but they all sort of have a spirit, you know. You know, it's funny. My mother used to said, every, used to say to me, everything has life in it. Yes. Because everything is made out of something in that was alive. That's right. Something organic. Everything, even the most inorganic things, are are originally comprised of materials that had to have been organic at one time. Um, and on that note, I'd love if you'd read to, to me from, and, and please tell us once again, just in case we lost it in the technical difficulty, um, your adult poem, what book did it come from, and how did that book come to this be? Sunlight and Shadows. Okay, this one's called Love Never Dies. In sunlight or moonlight, dancing rainbows of color decorate each strand of hair as it cascades down her back. Star-kissed eyes twinkle with love as his hands caress. Arms entwined together, stealing a kiss in twilight. Long will the memories last in heart and mind as he stands, looking at the lonely stone with her, where her name is deeply etched. That's just beautiful. That, that gives chills, Marta. Really, truly beautiful. What? And I was able to hear you perfectly, too. The, there were no technical problems. Um, that was lovely. Thank you so much for sharing it. And that was called again. That one is from A Poet's Journey, Sunlight and Shadows. And the name of it is Love Never Dies. Really, truly beautiful. Thank you for sharing it. The only other thing that I want to ask you is I know that you write from a deep passion. Do you have any advice for writers who are looking for that muse, who are really trying to write from something deeper within them, how to tap into that? Uh, the first thing I think I would do if I was, well, the first thing I would recommend is um, something that was recommended to me. Pick up, read everything you can read. Pick up somebody else's poem or book or story and add it onto it. Write it and add onto it. Um, listen. Let your ego go. Any great actor or author has to let that part that they consider them that they hold on to really, really tightly for fear of losing something. They have to let that go. Mm-hmm. I At think, least that's my opinion. I think that's very good advice because really it becomes almost like method work, doesn't it? Right, it does. Mm-hmm. Because you, you actually, you can incorporate some of your own emotions, some of your own personality. But if you are trying to hold on to you, your characters aren't going to be real. You know, you hit on something really important there, and I'm going to ask you to go into it in a bit more detail, because if people haven't really dived into this type of thinking yet, they may not really know what you mean. But my best description for it is, I've seen authors who write multiple characters say in a novel because I like to read a lot of novels and it's said that every character is a bit of the writer and that is true of course and that will always be true but I think if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly if you really really want to create characters that are real they can't be all you you have to just shut that inner voice up and let the character's voice speak don't you Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I have not written anything that I did not let the 
character do what the character was going to do. Because they react with their reactions, not with yours. Right, right. And it, it requires letting your own people, you know, in this world where we're trying so hard to fit in with everybody else and fit into this mold that, that everybody else will be happy with and, and comfortable with, we're holding on to us so deep, dearly that we can't empathize with anything else. We can't let our ego go for fear that we're going to lose touch with all of that. Yes, yes. And it causes great it, divisions um, on the personal level, on the political level, on the, on the universal level. It causes great divisions, both in the macro and the micro. Absolutely, it does. Mm-hmm. Um, at least that's my opinion. And, and, but you have to be able to, if you take a, a, somebody who's done an absolutely fabulous role with something, they've let their ego go. Sometimes mm-hmm. it works out horribly, like it did with Keith Ledger, mm-hmm. because he killed himself, um, because he he let that part of that Joker and that dark thing grow too big in him, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and couldn't find a way out of it. So you have to walk that fine line and um, not get to that point, but you also have to be able to let yourself actually go and be a part of that character and I think one of a really really great ways when I was taking um, in college and taking writing uh, one of the my honors teacher would have us take a short story and either add on to it or add something add on to a piece at the end of it mm-hmm. like and I can't remember the name of the story um, offhand, but the woman had thought had thought her husband had died in a train crash, and she had been quite sickly. And she was, and her sister lived with them too. And her, um, and she was sitting there all of a sudden, feeling very relieved because she did not fit into the role of the early 1900s, 18, late 1800s, early 1900s wife. Mm-hmm. And there was this hope in her of becoming her. Mm-hmm. And then she came down, the, came down the stairs and her husband walked in the door. He hadn't taken that train. Oh. And she dropped, dropped dead of a heart attack. Okay. And so the teacher's assignment was, okay, you have to put yourself in this place, and why? Mm -hmm. Tell us why. Yeah. Yeah. So what you're really describing is a method of learning to become a conduit, almost. By finishing someone else's story, you're forcing yourself to accept their voice flowing through you so that when you draw the conclusion, you're drawing their conclusion, not your own. Is that about right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And becoming a conduit for those voices in your head and letting them be who they are. They don't need to express your morals at every time or your type of reaction they should not be cookie cutouts where all the good are really really good reflections of you as the writer and all the bad are what you as the writer really find to be bad in the world they come with their own attitudes and their own definitions of good and evil well Marta, i've got to thank you for coming on the show today i really appreciate it and we 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 got into some really strange topics outside of the book industry today which was a lot of fun <laughs> And thank you so much. I've I've enjoyed it so much, and I really appreciate it, Donna. Well, you stay on the line for a second. I'm going to turn off the recording, but I'm not going to hang up, so just stay with me for a moment. My thanks go out to Marta Moran Bishop for joining us today on the podcast. And now I'm delighted to read a truly wonderful story written by Jane Peterson Burfield titled Belief, which first appeared in World Enough and Crime, Carrick Publishing, 2014. 
Jane was a co-winner of the Boney Pete Short Story Award in 2001 for her first story, Slow Death and Taxes. After several years of success with the Bloody Words Story Contest, she decided writing was a misery-making but delightful challenge. She has had short stories published in Blood on the Holly and Bloody Words the Anthology, as well as in Thirteen, an anthology of crime stories, Thirteen O'Clock, and Thirteen Claws, all by the Maydams of Mayhem, all published by Carrick Publishing, as well as World Enough and Crime, Carrick Publishing. Jane is honored to be a member of the Maydams of Mayhem and looks forward to the creative buzz that comes from an association of women writers. And now her story, Belief. Editor's Note When is it a crime to harbor secrets? In this magical and uniquely sincere tale, Jane Peterson Burfield leaves us wondering, mob boss, master smuggler, or beloved hero of those who believe? Light strobed outside the dark window, and rain tap danced on the wing. Nothing like a winter storm over the North Atlantic to bring added terror to a nervous flyer. I sat back, squished into my seat and closed my eyes, trying to ignore a wave of nausea. I wished I were back at home and not en route to my childhood house for Christmas for the first time in ten years. This trip would give me a chance to decide what I should do. Memories of holidays past swirled through my mind. Christmas time was magical when I was a small child. It held suspense, excitement, and mystery. Glass ornaments gently scratched by the years, foil icicles saved in tissue, and bubble lights for our tree were ingredients for a perfect Christmas. Most important was a snow globe of Santa on his sleigh, surrounded by elves, which sat on our mantle. It was much later when I understood this holiday of choreographed chaos was the perfect showcase for my mother's remarkable organizational skills and my dad's wizardry with outside lights. When I was a child, we had one of the best Christmas celebrations in North Toronto. I didn't realize the planning or the work it required. Back then, there was no question about belief in the magic of Christmas. But that was back then. When I was little, my sisters and I got excited a few days before the Eaton Santa Claus parade. I didn't mind being muffled into my snowsuit, a process I usually hated. I knew we were going downtown to see the clowns walk upside down. We waited on the curb and watched police on horses, huge floats, and marching bands go by. Dad would buy us caramel apples as a treat, or even a whistling bird on a stick. More floats would pass until Santa cracked his whip and called out, Ho, 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 on the last float. His reindeer seemed huge. They lunged forward high above us. I thought that if they were just freed from the float, they really would fly. Santa sat atop the sleigh, his beard contrasting on his red coat and black belt. The black whip he carried in his right hand seemed a little sinister, but it gave him a certain power. He was wonderful. He was magical. He was real. After a few weeks of lively anticipation, we would put the tree up in the living room. We had to wait until a week before Christmas so, as my mother would say, it wouldn't dry out too much and cause a fire. I would help unwrap all the old ornaments, the soft metal icicles, the colored glass balls, and the strings of beads from crumpled tissue paper. My hands would smell of old pine and mildew. Mother was as particular in her decorating agenda as she was about everything else in our lives. The lights had to be strung first, a process that seemed to take forever when I was impatient to put on the tinsel. Bubble lights, ones that had narrow cylinders atop round, water-filled globes, were the most magical. 
Next, we put the ornaments on. It's hard to remember what they were like, mostly thin glass balls. Some were formed like Santa or misshapen pine cones. I dropped one once, and it shattered into a flying star shape. I was careful after that. Some ornaments were plastic, a modern type that wouldn't break as easily, but they weren't nearly as wonderful as the old glass ones. Strands of gold and silver beads went on next. I wrapped them around the lower branches that I could reach. My older sisters looped them over the top branches, so they dangled down artistically, the way Mother instructed. Finally, the tinsel went on, never thrown in clumps, but carefully untwined a few strands at a time and placed on individual branches to look like angels' tears. I often seemed to end up with more static-charged tinsel on me than on the tree. Finally, the silver wire angel was put on the top, so high above me. When we had finished, Dad turned off the room lights, plugged in the tree, and we gloried in the enchantment. As the branches were warmed by the lights, a rich pine scent filled the room. Mother tidied away paper and packing boxes and then made hot chocolate, and we would sit and look at the tree. I adored it. I loved the sense of disorder that came from having a tree grown in the country, put up with great ceremony inside our overly tidy city house at this special time of year. This tree developed an aura of another person living in the house. I would talk to it quietly when I walked by, and I always half expected to hear it whisper back. It knew the secrets of Santa just like my snow globe. I opened my eyes when a particularly vivid flash lit the cabin. I was too frightened to close my window blind. I needed to see outside as the storm blew. I tried to get more comfortable in my window seat. As a complacent North Toronto child, I'd gone to school with neighborhood friends. We went to brownies together, to camp and confirmation class. Most of us attended Havergal College together in grade 7 and celebrated each other's sweet 16 birthdays. We moved en masse to St. Hilda's College at U of T, and along with taking the same programs, we joined the same sororities. By third year university, when I had finally started to think for myself, I needed to separate from the North Toronto Gestalt. I got interested in Greenpeace, stopped going to class, and started wearing sweatshirts instead of sweater sets. My dad thought I was building character at last. My mother was horrified. But it was when I refused to join the Junior League that she pretty much stopped talking to me. When I graduated the following year, I took a summer secretarial course and applied for a job at an overseas company. Its location in the north of Finland was far enough away for me to live without the burden of my mother's heavy disapproval. I believed I would find out who I was. I thought I would only be away for a few years, but I had been overseas now for more than ten. Initially, I'd worked as a secretary to one of the corporate managers. During the cold, dark winters, I met a number of people at work and at home parties, made many friends, and ended up marrying the older son of the boss. He was working hard then, and so we married in a stave church in Finland to take as little time from his work schedule as possible. No one from my family came. I'd always intended for us to go home soon after, but Nick never managed to get away. My dad never met him, and I somehow doubted my mother ever would. Ironically, they had both known his father when they were children, but I wasn't allowed to tell anyone that. After my escape overseas, I had gradually lost touch with North Toronto life, and I began to lose the magic of Christmas. The holiday now seemed to be just hard work. Our company had so much to do before year-end that I barely saw my husband or anyone else unless I went down to the warehouse. I felt lonely. 
I saw Nick so rarely that I had to use notes on his dresser to communicate. There was something I hadn't found a chance to let him know before I left, something I couldn't tell him in a note. It's good to have your own secrets at times. In Finland, I missed the sense of wonder my mother and dad had managed to give to Christmas when I was a child. After being away for so many years, I was going home to Canada for Christmas. I regretted not having made the trip before Dad had died four years earlier. Mother was getting to that early forgetful stage of vulnerability. I needed the reassurance of one of her Christmases while we could still have it. I needed to relive my memories of my childhood with my sisters, especially now. Towards the end of November, Nick was busy checking inventory, meeting deadlines, doing everything he could to hasten product delivery. I asked if he would mind me going home to Toronto. He barely took the time to look up before saying, no, of course not. When I asked if there was any chance for him to come with me, he glanced at me briefly and then said, perhaps sometime in the next few years, but he didn't know when. He did ask me to be discreet when talking about his company. The board always worried about industrial espionage. That night, I went on the internet and booked my travel arrangements. Nick's company, Jet, would get me to Copenhagen. I would take a good old Air Canada flight home from there. I arrived at Pearson International in a snow squall, but it was nothing compared to the storms I was used to overseas. I expected to catch a taxi home, but my sisters were waiting for me as I exited customs. I almost cried when I saw them. My emotions were brittle. Carol, over here, Brenda called to me across the heads of other travelers in the terminal. I pushed my luggage cart over and gave her a hug. Lynn, my quieter sister, gave me a huge hug next. Have you been waiting long? Where's mother? I asked. We just got here, and mother's at home. She's not as strong as she used to be. This snowstorm would be difficult for her to walk through. I didn't want to hear this. I had come home to experience a Christmas like we used to have. I began to doubt I would find any magic after all. We drove across the 401 in heavy traffic, traffic that overwhelmed me after the quiet roads of northern Finland. At least the colors were different here. I was tired of the unceasing monochromatic landscape, the ever-present red worn in North Finland to combat the whiteness of the winter. When we got to the house, the front bushes were outlined in multicolored lights, and a wreath had a jaunty tartan bow. Brenda opened the door and called to Mother. As we took off slushy boots and put my suitcase in the hall, she came down the stairs, slowly, leaning on the banister. She looked at least six inches shorter and twenty years older. When she said hello and reached up to embrace me, I felt her bones, stick-like, beneath wrinkled skin. I hugged her as tightly as I dared. Lynn brought us some tea as we chatted by the fireplace. She said they had delayed putting up the tree, an artificial one now, until I got there. We would do it tomorrow. We talked for several hours before jet lag forced me to head for my old bedroom. I was grateful to have some quiet time. It was very peculiar, but rather comforting, to go to sleep surrounded by the pictures and stuffed animals that had been important to me so many years ago. From the night table beside me, I picked up the glass snow globe, the one with Santa on his sleigh that my parents had given me for my tenth birthday. I shook it gently and watched as shimmering flakes obliterated the little figures inside. Its music, Silent Night, soothed me. I thought of Nick and my life in Finland, and then I slept deeply for the first time in weeks. I awoke very early and went downstairs to make morning tea. Sitting by a sunny window, I studied the kitchen and found it much the same as I remembered. Mother came down around 8 a.m. I had worried about talking with her alone, but we seemed to skirt around any uncomfortable subjects like Daddy's death, my not coming home, and my not having children. 
I heard about her friends, the ones still alive and mentally competent. She told me about my friends, the staunch little junior leaguers with husbands and multiple children. Children was said in a slightly louder tone. I've arranged a tea for you and your old friends, dear, she said, striking terror into my heart. What could I tell them about me? I wasn't allowed to reveal much about Nick or his company. All I ever said was that he was the boss of a large import-export business, one affiliated with Nokia. I wouldn't share my own secret with anyone until I had told Nick. My sisters came down for breakfast, and we made plans for the day. We decided to do some Christmas shopping at Yorkdale, and then come home and put up the tree before having mother's chili and homemade bread. The crowds at Yorkdale were startling. I had forgotten how many people can fit into a mall at Christmas time. Santa's workshop was set up in a central location, and the claws wore an authentic-looking suit. Did the kids believe as strongly as I once had? I bought a few things for Brenda and Lynn and found a lovely scarf for Mother, one with a signature that would please both her and her bridge-playing friends. We went home gratefully mid-afternoon, sat with a cuppa, and talked about our current lives. Brenda and Lynn sensed that I was guarded in what I could say. I muttered something about corporate espionage, patents, and the need for total discretion. We decided to have a rest before excavating the tree and ornaments from the basement. Despite suffering from jet lag, I couldn't sleep. Too much stimulation and too many memories. Late that afternoon, Lynn carried the artificial tree up from the cellar, and Brenda and I fetched dusty boxes of ornaments. They were beautifully packed in tissue, but when I unwrapped them, they looked small and a little shabby. All but one of the bubble lights had long ago broken, so we put mini lights on the tree and then began to hang the ornaments. Most were now unbreakable plastic, but a few of the old ones were still intact. I found a woven gold thread to replace the colored beads of long ago. Finally, we unwrapped the tinsel from its nest of tissue. I'm sure some of it was the original tinsel from 20 years earlier. When I was careless and put too much on one branch, Mother ordered me to do it properly, strand by strand. Finally, we put the worn-out angel on top. It was now more tarnished than silver, but it still looked both magical and very high. Maybe there was a little enchantment left. I half expected the tree to whisper to me. Over the next few days, I met with old friends. I looked at pictures of their families and thought it might have been pictures of us when we were small. When they asked to see pictures of Nick and my family overseas, I pulled out one of Nick by himself. He was sitting on the seashore in summer, not wearing the inevitable red of winter, but in jeans and a sweater. To my newly reborn North Toronto eyes, he looked a little strange, sort of like the scraggly bearded owner of a Swedish furniture franchise in the ads on television. I could sense they thought Nick looked old. How could I explain that he was both perpetually old and perpetually young at the same time? I couldn't tell them much of anything about him, but looking at him I realized how much I missed him and our life so far away. I knew I really didn't belong in North Toronto anymore, at least not now. The next two weeks passed quickly. We went to a carol service at our old school. We Christmas shopped whenever we thought the mall would be quiet enough to navigate. Newly released holiday movies were a luxury I rarely enjoyed overseas. I refurbished my wardrobe, buying blue and green and brown, anything but red. I bought sweaters for Nick's brothers and pretty bags and scarves for their wives. I found some lingerie I thought Nick might enjoy seeing me in, a present for both of us, if he ever had the time. We listened to Christmas music, watched television specials, and baked. I helped out at the Daily Bread Food Bank with Brenda and her kids. When Lynn and her husband wanted to go out one night, I babysat her two boys and enjoyed a chance to know them better. 
I took them to see Santa at the mall. A rather bizarre experience. The hired elves were much too big. I hoped the boys would like the toys I'd chosen. On Christmas Eve, I sat quietly in the living room near the fire, my water globe at my side. The tree lights shone softly, and carols played on the stereo. I was gazing at the fire when I swear I heard a whisper. I looked up quickly, but no one was there. I pulled out the packages I had put aside, glass ornaments wrapped in red paper for Brenda, Lynn, and Mom. I thought perhaps I could start a new tradition. My sisters came in and sat with me until Mother was ready. She took time to get down the stairs, and I knew her arthritis must be painful. When she stepped into the living room, she had packages ready for us, Christmas pajamas, just like when we were little. I hugged her gently and thanked her for Christmas, not just for this one, but for all the years when she had created so much magic. And I thought ahead to next year when our own baby would be enjoying Christmas for the first time. As I said goodnight to Mother, she whispered in my ear, Do you know why we named you Carol? When I said no, she explained, Both your dad and I loved Christmas so much, we wanted you to carry a name that would remind you and us of it all year round. You are our Christmas Carol. We thought the Santa Globe would remind you of the magic, but you left it here. I know, Mom. I'll try to come home again next year. I've missed all of you and Daddy. I miss him so much. As Mum climbed up the stairs, I lifted the globe from the table and swirled the snow. There was magic in it. There was magic in this night, Christmas Eve. I just had to believe. That night, in my bed, I thought of Nick. This was his busiest night of the year. I realized how much I missed him, and I looked forward to going home in a week. He might not be the perfect husband, one able to take the time to be with me as often as I would like, but he sure brought magic to a world of people. I picked up my Santa snow globe, shook it gently, and whispered to him, Fly carefully, Nick. May your Christmas Eve go well. I'll be back soon. I swear I heard a whisper say, I love you, Carol. Merry Christmas. My thanks go out to Jane Peterson Burfield for this touching holiday story. Now that we're well into December, I thought you all might enjoy a touch of magic to help you in your own belief. Are you a published author? Would you like to be profiled on Dead to Rights, the podcast? We're now filling slots for 2019, and we'd love to hear from you. Just get in touch at carrotpublishing at rogers.com, and be sure to say Dead to Rights interview in the subject line. Do you have a question for any of our featured authors regarding the book business? Do you have a theme or topic you would like us to address? We would love to hear from you. You can touch base at deadtorights.ca, on Facebook under Dead to Rights, or on Twitter at Dead to Rights Pod. Of course, you can always find me on my personal page, Donna Carrick, on Facebook, or under my page, Carrick Publishing. We're also tweetable at Donna underscore Carrick, at Alex underscore Carrick, or at Carrick Pub. If you have any questions related to the book industry for any of our authors, don't hesitate to reach out through our online presence. Be sure to join us next week when I'll bring you our interview with E.C. Frey, the author of Entangled Moon. I'll also bring you a reading of a fun story by Rosemary O'Bear, who is an exceptional crime writer and poet, and uh, it's titled... Kitty Claws to the Rescue, and I must tell you that of 13 Claws by the Maydams of Mayhem, I got the most comments on Kitty Claws to the Rescue by Rosemary O'Bear, so I think you're going to enjoy hearing that one. Be sure to join us for it. All music for Dead to Rights, including our theme song, Eyes of Gold, has been composed and performed by our son, Ted Carrick. You can find more of Ted's work on YouTube at Ted Carrick Music. Thanks for joining us. See you next week.
a dusty road, a man alone. His vital signs go on hold. And I don't know what you've been told. But the years have turned my eyes gold. And I told you what you told me We'd never be in the same boat for free Yet it rides Let it rock